The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Globalism hasn't worked for everyone, with inequality growing around the world and few viable solutions in sight. I'm Amanda Gomez, your host for this episode of The Exchange. I asked Ian Bremmer, author of the bestseller Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, what can be done before the global economy is irreversibly affected. So in your book, first thing you could jump into is all the crisis going on in the world. And so can you explain to me pretty much the basis of the book, which is how has globalism failed? So globalization has not failed, right? Okay. The idea that we have economics that are increasingly global and available to everyone means that there's been a lot of growth, a lot of people have gone out of poverty. That's why it's the failure of globalism. Mm-hmm. Globalism is a political ideology driven by Western elites that basically says that open borders and free trade and global security provided by the West and technology for everybody is good for everyone. And it's been really good for elites. Mm -hmm. But actually, most citizens in advanced industrial democracies feel like globalism has not worked for them. And that's why we got Trump. And that's why we got Bernie Sanders. Frankly, that's why we got Obama. That's why we got Brexit. It's why Macron almost didn't make the second round and the established parties all died in France. It's why the alternatives for Deutschland are in the Bundestag in Germany right now. It's why the Italians had the worst elections they've had since World War II and Berlusconi got crushed by the Northern League. It's why Orban is there in Hungary. In fact, the only country of all the advanced industrial democracies that doesn't have this problem is Japan because their population is shrinking. So per capita, they feel better in the working class because they don't accept any immigrants, so no non-Japanese to hate, and because their military doesn't fight anywhere, right? And so no enlisted men and women that are really getting angry that they're being fighting in failed wars. And then artificial intelligence is like, yeah, we need that because we don't have people. So the only country that doesn't have a problem with globalism is the one that hasn't supported globalism. And that's a real problem because everyone right now has their head all blown off over Trump. If we just get rid of Trump, we got to get rid of Trump. And the fact is it's not about Trump. It's not about Trump. We have to ask ourselves, how did this country get to the point that so many people thought that they either should not vote because it didn't matter Mm -hmm. or they vote for Trump? That's what people should be asking. Mm -hmm. So it is it's the political failure, not the economic failure. Exactly. Is it too early then to predict that it's it's actually failed if you say there's something else there? I, I don't think it's too early to say right now it's failed. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think that when you, when you see what's happening to liberal democracies around the world and their establishments, and I'm not just talking about the political leaders. I'm also talking about business leaders and financial leaders and the mainstream media and public intellectuals like me. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about this entire elite class that, that tells everyone what the facts are and that there's a protest against the idea that those facts may be true, but they're being used to perpetuate the entrenchment of those people. You know, I mean, there's a, there, I, I grew up in the projects, right? And there were no capitalists around me because no one had capital. These are just people, average people, that want a good job and want hope their kids will have a shot at the American dream. And I will tell you that in 2018, I think the average Chinese believes more in the Chinese dream 
than the average American believes in the American dream. I mean, the, the, the very notion that one in six American young people today think that military rule would be better than democracy. And if they say that, that means it's a larger percentage because, of course, a lot of people don't admit that sort of thing when they're asked. That doesn't mean that they think democracy is broken. That means that they think that the United States is not a democracy. They think the United States is rigged against them. And I'm, I wrote this book because I fear they're right. It's as divided as it is right now with the best economy we've had since before 2008. So what do you think this is going to feel like when we hit a recession? Right. It's going to get a lot worse. How do you convince the elitists that there is something wrong here? You know, how do you present that argument to them to say something needs to change? It's really hard. I mean, I, I, people have asked me if this book is about providing the roadmap for the solutions, and I, I've actually said no. For me, this book feels more like if I were a climatologist and I was writing about climate change 30 years ago, when we all knew that the science was clear, but none of the major governments wanted to deal with it because it was going to be expensive and we didn't know what the solutions were and there were higher priorities and it was affecting mostly poor people and da-da-da-da-da, right? So if you were writing a book about climatology and climate change 30 years ago, the book would be about, hey, this is important. You need to pay attention to it. And, and so I think the primary purpose of us versus them is that when globalism has failed, we're going to be in a system where we dehumanize people. And we have now elected the most us versus them president in American history. We've elected someone who is incredibly effective at dehumanizing people. Mexicans are coming here to rape our women and criminalize us. Haitians are bringing AIDS. Nigerians, if they come here, if we let them in, they will never go back to their huts. Black football players that we allow to make millions of dollars dare to kneel during our national anthem. This is a message that resonates very strongly with a lot of people that feel like they've been forgotten for a very long time, right? And, and I think we have to convince Americans with power that this is not the country they want to live in. I, I, I tell you, uh, so far this year, we've allowed in 11 Syrian refugees. And I could give you their names, 11. Last year was over 3,000. The year before was about 13,000 last year of Obama. I posted that. And about half of the Americans that wrote back said, yeah, 11 is too many. Now, I will tell you, that's not a country I want to live in. Because you can only do that if you don't think Syrians are people. Mm -hmm. But you feel that way if you think that the system has not taken care of you and your family for decades. I, I fear that that level that Trump really facilitates that level of dehumanization of the other in the United States. One thing you mentioned in, in a lot of countries, you call them the fault lines. Mm -hmm. These countries, some people, like you said, Mexico, they see them as the other. Right. But these, these economies are still important to economies like the United States. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that and how maybe putting them as them is a little ignorant in a way that they don't understand that them are helping you live the way you're living. Yeah. I mean, look, so there are two ways to look at it. The first is that NAFTA has created a lot of wealth for the United States. You got cheaper labor in Mexico. Mm. You've got integrated supply chains, which means that we're getting goods cheaper from Walmart. And of course, not just Mexico, but China, which is the big one, right? They're manufacturing everything. Mm -hmm. um, and if you cut that off, and if you start a trade war and tariffs, or if you break NAFTA, 
then our goods are going to be more expensive. But if you're an average American living in a place that used to manufacture, living in an inner city, living in a rural area, and suddenly the jobs are gone and the infrastructure isn't there and no one's investing in your policing and you've got a massive opioid crisis, you'd say, you know, my life has gotten worse the last 40 years. So I hear them telling me that NAFTA is making life better, but actually my life is worse. Now, the solution, in my view, is not to break NAFTA. So in other words, as I said at the beginning, this is not globalization. But if you are not, as a government in the United States, going to actually take care of people here in the U.S., they have no reason to vote for free trade. They really don't. You've given them no incentive. And, and I, I think that that is the crux of the problem. Bring it back to how you started out as well. How sure. do you explain to a younger you, for example, who never went to see the big fancy building in the city, how do you explain to that person, which there are millions of them, that it's not the other's fault in economic terms. It's not the other's fault that they're in that position. It's automation. It's education. Mm -hmm. It's all these other things. Where is that message getting lost? Well, um, I, I think it's getting lost because there is so much more income disparity. Mm -hmm. There is so much wealth in the world today, so many people have come out of poverty, that people don't believe. They hear the media all the time telling them about what they're going to do. They hear the politicians making enormous promises, and they just don't believe in it anymore. You don't want the populace to win, but you don't want the establishment to win either. You want people that are able to actually bridge those two and bring them together. And the farther we get apart, the harder it is to convince people of that. So again, what I'm saying is that we're far from the solutions right now. The only solutions that I see right now are the ones that are being driven by smart individuals outside of the central governments. It's the, it's the occasional CEO that says, you know, it's not okay for us to make all this money and just give it back to the shareholders. We need to do something to provide universal lifetime training for our workers so that as automation comes along, they're not going to be displaced they have a chance to continue to develop the skill set. You have to be able to say, as some the, in San Francisco now, since I finished the book, uh, there's a new program and all citizens of San Francisco, all residents can have free community college education. And I hope that will lead to programs in other cities that say, wow, they're going to be more competitive if they offer that. Maybe we want to do that too. And it's a cost, but it's one that will ultimately be better for all. But those, those are grassroots, fairly small experiments we need many more of them. They need to be proven, then they need to be scalable, and then they need to be picked up by governments. And I would argue that we are decades away from this. And the problem is that with automation and AI developing as quickly as it is, we're going to have a hell of a lot more people displaced by those technologies before we end up with the kinds of solutions that might give them the skill sets to participate meaningfully in this new economy. Right. And then you, along those lines, you mentioned that's going to be actually harder for developing countries. Let's look at Brazil, Mexico, Venezuela, South Africa, in India, Indonesia. You pick these places because it's going to be harder when automation hits. Yes, because these are the countries that really benefited from globalization. 
right? When the United States had its middle class and working class gutted by cheaper labor rates in different parts of the world, who were the people that were picking it up? We were bringing factories to all of those emerging markets, and we were creating middle classes there so that they could consume and buy their first refrigerator, their first motorcycle, their first car. And that was an extraordinary benefit of globalization. But now that you see that increasingly those jobs in manufacturing and services, professional white-collar jobs, too, can be automated more cheaply. While labor in those countries, those emerging markets, has gotten more expensive, the, those countries are going to become very vulnerable, and their institutions are not as strong and resilient as they are in the West, and their social safety nets are much more porous than they are in the West, which means, I mean, you saw what happened in the United States. If people lose their job, they're not going to starve. In Tunisia, you had people lighting themselves on fire when they no longer had a livelihood because that was the difference between life and death for themselves and their families. And if your family, if you don't think you can provide for your family, you'll do anything. You'll go on the streets. You'll kill people if your kids are in danger. And so absolutely, the emerging markets are going to be the more vulnerable of the states out there. But the interesting thing is that doesn't include China. And the reason it doesn't include China is because technology is benefiting the authoritarian states right now. The Chinese state capitalist system is much more capable than any other government in the world at being able to employ lots of inefficient labor. I mean, in another emerging market democracy, if labor is inefficient, you say, well, okay, then you're just going to make sure you make money. And so they make decisions in the private sector. In China, you can say, okay, well, we'll, we'll lead the world in industrial robots, but we'll have state-owned enterprises that will also make sure that all of these inefficient people still have jobs. You know, digging ditches, doing whatever, but we will make sure that happens. You can do that. And in the United States, in the West, we have our smartphones, we have our Facebook, we have our Twitter. That's, it's just meant to make money. And we're the product because they're advertising companies and it's driving us further apart. It's radicalizing and polarizing society. In China, those apps are controlled ultimately by the government and it's bringing people closer together because they're very unhappy when people in China are reading and listening to things that aren't state-sanctioned. So in other words, perhaps the most concerning part of this book is that the piece of globalism that has most failed in the last, not 30 years, five years, has been that technology is now undermining the fabric of the social contract in liberal democracies. And it is precisely that technology that's making the Chinese model stronger. In the West, in the last 30 years, we all believed, we all believed that as China got wealthier, that they would have to politically reform and open up and become more like us, or they'd fail. Mm -hmm. And it turns out we were wrong. You called it globalization's greatest success story, mm -hmm. China, and how the global economy depends on China. Yeah. How, not only in the last five years, in the last 50 years, how did we get to that point where another government can look at China and say, we don't need to be a democracy to be a superpower. We don't need to be a democracy to be successful. What do you say to them? What do you say to these kind of countries that will follow China instead of the U.S., for example. Look, the, the Chinese are, first of all, spending lots of money outside of China. They're writing big checks. I, I think if you want to talk not about what happens within systems, but what happens internationally, globalism really lost its appeal in the tipping point when the Soviet Union collapsed. The moment when we were truly resurgent, when there was no other model, that was the moment when we as the United States should have rebuilt our vanquished enemies, the former Soviets, with a Marshall Plan and help them to become part of our system with our values and our architecture, our institutions, just like we did after World War II, MacArthur in Japan and the Marshall Plan in Europe. 
right? And instead, we said, here's some shock therapy. Have a party. And we'll just make sure that we expand NATO and the European Union. That was a mistake. It was a huge mistake. And the funny thing is it wasn't even a mistake that we were thinking about. No one was considering even doing this because we were just focused on ourselves. There wasn't, there wasn't grand strategy. Today, the only country of scale that's doing grand strategy is China. Now, it's good that China's growing because if they weren't growing, we'd have a much bigger problem economically. And we want to take more people out of poverty. But the fact that it's the Chinese doing it, not the Americans, and we're wealthier than the Chinese, means that a whole bunch of other countries are going to start orienting towards China. And let's face it, most people in the world would rather have civic liberties and freedoms than live under an authoritarian China. But when they see that the United States doesn't know what it stands for, when they see that we don't want Syrians, when they see that we don't even want Chinese, I mean, when we, when we say we're going to build a wall and we say that we won't accept people from S-hole countries, right, it's not the most downtrodden. The Hon people from Honduras will still try to get here because they have no choice. But the most talented people in the world who could live anywhere, a lot of them are going to say, maybe I don't really want to be in the United States. We're eating our seed corn. In 20, 30 years, we're not going to have the most talented young people coming into America. They're going to be in other places. Some will be in Canada. Some will be in Singapore. Some will be in mainland China. And that's ultimately going to hurt us. And we can see this happening every day. Or we should be able to. Those of us that care about what happens outside the United States and the world for our kids is going to be worse. Then, we need, we need to lead by example. The reason why the Russians were able to cause problems in our elections, not because the Russians are so strong, it's because we weren't leading by example. Because we were so divided that even a little bit of salt rubbed in our wounds by the Russians really made it fester. But then what happens when it's followed by a period of, of growth? I mean, the 90s were pretty good for a lot of people in the, in the United States financially. Mm -hmm. What happens when everything's all right? Do Americans just continue to support this kind of government? Well, that's, that's what I'm saying, is that right now everything is all right, right, from a macro perspective. I mean, the economy looks good. Uh, interest rates are quite low. We just passed a budget that felt like a Democrat budget, massive deficit spending, right? I mean, everybody gets tax cuts. No economist out there thinks this is sustainable, right? Almost everyone thinks that if in, over the next five years, we're due for a pretty significant recession. And these things are cyclical. On average, since World War II, we've had recessions every six to seven years. So I would turn the question back on you. I'd say, given the fact that the economy is doing so well right now and we feel so divided, what's going to happen when it doesn't? And that's particularly true because only a small piece of this is economic. A big piece of this is about identity and culture, right? I mean, in Germany, the working class feels pretty good economically, but they really don't like the fact that they let in all those refugees. And that's why they voted against Merkel, so many of them. In Italy, in the South, where it's poor, it's mostly an economic argument that brought the five-star movement populist group in. But in the North, where it was rich, Berlusconi still lost. Instead, you got the Northern League. Why? Because they promised to kick out 600,000 Libyan migrants that had been allowed in. So it is a mistake for Americans to believe, capitalist American elites to believe, that it's all about money. It is not all about money. But then how do you incentivize companies to do the right thing? How do you incentivize the elites to do the right thing? Well, ultimately, if companies want the United States as a consumption-driven model to succeed long term, then they want there to be a large consumer base that will continue to grow. And the direction we're going in right now, that will not be the case. You'll have um, a small group of elites that will spend an enormous amount of money, and you'll have an underclasses that will not do as well. The problem is, as I'm sure you know, 
is that there's not a lot of long-term thinking corporate elites. The average CEO in America lasts less than five years. And you know the fiduciary responsibility frequently is looking at quarter-to-quarter -quarter numbers and response as opposed to what's going to happen in three or five or ten years. So I worry that right now there aren't so many CEOs. Instead, we have people like Bill Gates and Mike Bloomberg who are you know, worth an enormous amount of money and have seen enough that they can take the long view. There are examples. And it's not just the you know, sort of entrepreneurs. Pope Francis, the Catholic Church is not exactly progressive. It's anti-science, it's anti-woman, it's anti-gay, it's got massive problems with pedophilia. And yet, Pope Francis has become one of the most inspirational figures in the world. Why? Because he leads by example because he's a person from his perch that's able to talk about poverty and able to talk about climate and able to talk about diversity and inclusion, which I think really resonates with an awful lot of people that feel like their own governments are letting them down. So I, it's not as if we're in a world that's bereft of hope, but we are in a world right now that is heading in a direction that people who like liberal democracy should really be uncomfortable with. So as you point out in the book, there are many warning signs. Hmm. The warning signs are all there. How can countries act upon those as they're happening? I think that we need to focus on the working and middle class in this country. We have to spend our money on not just a short-term tax break, but on the long term. Right? I mean, there's been enormous dissatisfaction among many around Trump that the corporate CEOs took their tax breaks and bought back shares. Right, as opposed to investing in their workers. Uh, the United States is a capitalist economy, but we have done things for workers before. During the, the Gilded Age, right? I mean, you had incredible inequality. So last time you've had inequality like you do right now in the United States, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, we then have a Great Depression, and the United States responds with great society. And you, know, you see that um, the response to corporations is uh, a pretty big stick from the U.S. government saying, we, we are going to provide protections for the working class. And that's how unions got started. And uh, that's how we got Social Security and pensions. And that's, that's how we got protections for the average American. And, and I, I think that we need to start thinking in that way. Now, I mean, there's no reason to believe that that's going to happen under the Trump administration. There's no reason to believe that with this Congress under any administration that's going to happen. But, you know, if you want it to happen before we have a big depression or a massive recession, then those are the sorts of things you'd need to address. Because again, right now, the direction that we're heading in is not going to fix this, right? And I, I'm an enormously upbeat person, right? I mean, I, I, to, to have done what I have accomplished over the last 20 years of my life, given where I come from, I have no right to be angry at anything. And I, I'm not. But I, I want to write a more upbeat book. And I can't in good conscience do that. Because, I mean, for 20 years, my firm has been all about trying to speak truth to power, talking to people that go to Davos and saying, look, you guys are in a position to do something. Let me give you a better sense of what's happening in the world so that, you know, your decision-making processes will actually get us to a better place. And you know what? It's not been enough, right? Not for me, not from anybody. So, I mean, the reason I wrote this book and the reason I started a media company, G Zero Media, which started a foundation, is because I feel like, you know, everyone in a position of influence that can do more to reach out to people and make that bridge between the establishment and those that are not, between us and them, must do so.
right? That's and and I'm obviously not going to move that needle by myself. But if enough of us actually start hearing that message, maybe it'll make a difference. Ian, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the exchange. This podcast is produced by Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or check us out at breakingviews.com.